The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is The Fall Line. This spring, I had the chance to sit down with someone who's become one of my favorite people in the true crime space. Not just as a content creator, but as a thinker, a moral compass, and as someone who's willing to ask hard questions and believe that the intersections of crime and entertainment can and should be a better place. I first met Sarah Turney a few years ago at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Chicago. Brooke couldn't make it that year. She just had a new baby, so I was representing the fall line on a panel covering ethics and true crime. Patrick Hines from True Crime Obsessed was moderating that panel, and Sarah Turney was the lone family member who was joining us that year. I think it was the first time that she'd ever spoken to an audience on the subject, but it would hardly be the last. She had just launched her own podcast, Voices for Justice, that very same day. Most of our listeners are probably familiar with Sarah's work, but just in case you haven't heard of her podcast or her story, Sarah's sister, Alyssa Turney, was just 17 years old when she disappeared. Alyssa was finishing out her junior year in Paradise Valley, Arizona, in May 2001. She lived there with her sister, Sarah, and her stepfather, and Sarah's father, Michael Turney. Alyssa's last day of school, May 17th, was also the last day that she was seen. Michael Turney gave authorities a variety of stories concerning Alyssa's disappearance. She was treated as a runaway, and her case was not viewed as a missing persons investigation for years to come. This is thoroughly explored in Sarah's podcast, Voices for Justice, which we urge you to listen to. Sarah became convinced of her father's alleged involvement in Alyssa's disappearance and Alyssa's probable death, and Sarah struggled to gain attention, any attention, that she could for her sister's case, for years. That sometimes led to her dealing with abusive media, or slam doors, or the knowledge her story would be used in whatever way that outlets saw fit. Eventually, Sarah decided to do things her own way. She started her podcast, but she also took to social media, and she gained a massive following on TikTok. A few months into Sarah's social media experiment, Elle magazine ran a headline about her quest. It said, I'm using TikTok to catch my sister's killer. And then, just two months later, they published a new headline in the same magazine. I used TikTok to catch my sister's killer. A lot can happen in a few years or a few months. Sarah Turney knows that. And as Michael Turney's trial has geared up, she's continued to help other families through her podcasting. But Sarah hasn't stopped there. 
she knows what it's like to be on both sides of the equation, as a family member, on the receiving end of true crime media, and as the creator who's producing it. Since she started her work, but especially in the past year and a half, Sarah has concentrated her efforts on true crime creators and true crime audiences. She's asking us to ask ourselves some tough questions about the content we make and the content we consume. What do we really want out of true crime? Why do we create and consume the material that we do? Is doing it for the victims just something people say? Or is there a way to actually help them learn what it means and uplift all true crime entertainment? Because that's the thing about it. People do want to be entertained. We tell stories to evoke emotion, to connect listeners to cases, to create feeling and action. But we want to do that without cost to victims and families and survivors. And Sarah thinks that can expand beyond the ethical true crime circles that, for now, can feel small. In fact, she thinks a seismic shift is on its way. That it's already begun. In late spring, we sat down to talk about a number of current events and issues that we felt touched on some of the larger themes that connect both ethics and true crime and the changes that we hope to see and what we think is coming. Sarah is really fascinating and inspiring to speak with, and it was such a great conversation that we wanted to share all of it with you. But it's a long one. So we're going to break this discussion of the true crime revolution into two parts. This week, we take on the case of Daniel Robinson and the trouble his father has had getting coverage, consent in true crime documentaries, and rethinking dehumanization in headlines. There's a lot more to come. By the end, I think you'll feel like I did, probably like most people do when they talk to Sarah ready to get out there and change things. I think that the first time that you and I ever talked was at the True Crime Podcast Festival in I, 2018. Uh, 2018 or was 2019. It? The year escapes me, but that sounds right. Yeah. And we were on a podcast panel together to discuss true crime ethics. And this was before you had started Voices for Justice. I know that we were talking about ethics and you and I had some really fascinating discussions on the panel about interactions with law enforcement and families. And it was really fascinating to talk to you even in that setting, which was kind of controlled because we had a moderator. I think Patrick Hines did it. He did a really good job. Ever since then, we have been in conversation with each other off and on, and we tend to be drawn into the same conversations over and over again online. Absolutely. Well, we care about the same things. Yeah. We tend to also be around the same issues online as well, the same families. We tend to get tagged on the same posts, you know, like, can you amplify this? Um, can you share this post? We've been kicking around the idea of having a conversation together about ethics and true crime for quite a while. And I think that this topic has been discussed a lot more often in the past two years, especially, I would say since early 2020 is really when I've seen this kind of ramp up. And I think you have had a big part in that. 
Well, thank you. That's very flattering. I, I'm very passionate and can't shut up about it, to be totally honest. So you're the first family member creator that I became aware of outside of some really high profile people. You're the first one that was part of the indie true crime community. And I think that your presence on TikTok and how that was an essential part of your sister's case coming forward, all of that really built some momentum. And so then when you launched Voices for Justice, that was something that people hadn't really interacted with before and also not really had to face and think about before as well. How do we interact with true crime? How do we think about the stories that we're listening to? How, do we humanize the people who are involved? How do we share information? How do we talk about not only the victims, but the survivors and the families that are left behind? Now you actually have two podcasts, right? I do. Yeah, I have Voices for Justice, which I still produce in-house, totally independent, just me, basically. And uh, I do have a researcher now, which is very exciting. And then I do Disappearances, which I produce with Spotify. And on Disappearances, that's where you're kind of tackling better known cases? Yeah, so Disappearances does feature more well-known cases. And one of the pivots in the content that I pushed for there was, if we're going to push these well-known cases, I'd also like to address some of these social issues. So we've really kind of pivoted it to not just tell these stories and, you know, focus on the families who've been left behind or, you know, whoever might have been close to the victim or survivor or whatever it might be. But we want to address these larger social issues. You know, if we're talking about, you know, an indigenous woman, let's talk about the issues there and make sure that we're highlighting that as well. So it's it's very different. And to be honest, it's really great because I have a whole team over there. So it allows me to do much more than I can with Voices for Justice. So they are they seem similar, but in my mind, they are very, very different. One thing I like about Voices for Justice is the flexibility of the shape of the show. You're able to cover so many different kinds of stories. You're able to cover cases that have been in the media quite a lot and cases that have had no media coverage at all. What was your thinking in developing that kind of flexibility for the show? It was my personal experience. You know, part of my journey was when the police told me that my best chance to get justice for my sister was to get media coverage. I ended up, you know, essentially begging these podcasts and YouTube channels, these independent creators um, to cover my sister's story. And oftentimes I would be told that it doesn't fit into their format. It was too old. It was too publicized. It wasn't publicized enough. It wasn't technically a murder or whatever it was. And so when I created Voices for Justice, I really wanted to be able to feature all stories in need of justice. It's as simple as that, you know, because in, in my mind, when people would tell me, well, you don't need any help, your sister's stories everywhere. You know, For me, sitting waiting for justice, that's not how I saw it. You know what I mean? And in my mind, she still needed help. And it was heartbreaking for creators to kind of put her in a category of too big, too small, whatever it might be. So for Voices for Justice, it's just if a case needs justice, then I do it. So what I was hoping to talk about today are ethical issues, but maybe not the stuff that people are expecting us to discuss that have been the kind of big issues that have come up over and over again. Things like how much detail to include or plagiarism. These are some issues that are more current events, I think, that have been discussed on the ground. And one of them is, I think, which cases get attention and which don't. But more to the point, I think, how to get the cases that don't get attention, attention. And in particular, there's one case that you and I have both been focusing on a lot in social media. And this is the case of Daniel Robinson. 
and the struggle his dad has had to get coverage, even though his story has what true crime creators look for, and those are what we call the so-called, quote, compelling aspects. In many ways, it has the classic disappearance signals that would set off true crime pages, that would set off news pages, that would set off TikTok. And for those who don't know, Daniel Robinson is a geologist who was last seen on June 21st, 2021. And I'm going to quote from his dad's website here, quote, Daniel Robinson was last seen the morning of June 23rd, 2021, leaving his worksite in Buckeye, Arizona. He was driving his 2017 blue-gray Jeep Renegade and is believed to have headed west, deeper into desert terrain. On Tuesday, July 19, 2021, Daniel's vehicle was found by a rancher a little over two and a half miles from the worksite in a remote part of the desert. On that day, the rancher reported the vehicle to Buckeye Police Department, who later did a ground search by drone. The vehicle was recovered. Daniel was not found. Now, Sarah, I know that you have followed Daniel's case closely for a number of reasons. One is that it's local to you. But his father has been facing a lot of the same problems that you did with Alyssa's case. And there have been, for obvious reasons, some comparisons between Daniel's case and other high-profile cases that occurred in the same year. Gabby Petito, her disappearance, which was reported in September of 2021. And of course, there was a concerted effort by law enforcement and from multiple agencies to find Gabby. Daniel's father himself couldn't help but compare those two situations because he's been having trouble getting that same kind of support. And to be clear, he was supportive of the search for Gabby. He pointed out to Rolling Stone that that was a proper utilization of resources. And David Robinson, who's Daniel's father, he's been doing his own searches with volunteers. And this is something he has entirely organized himself. He's actually recovered multiple human remains during his searches, and he's actually closed cases for other families. And I also want to add here that he's a disabled Army veteran with PTSD, and he's been organizing all of this through crowdfunding and with the help of volunteers. He's been running social media campaigns, but the media coverage, the awareness in the true crime community is nothing like I've seen for comparatively high profile cases. And I've looked at shows that have covered Daniel's disappearance. A quick search on Apple Podcasts, obviously that's not going to be exhaustive, but it's a pretty good comparison, gave me 25 or so, give or take. And for Gabby, I stopped counting at 200. YouTube was similar when I looked there. And on TikTok, the Daniel Robinson hashtag had about 12.5 million views. And that sounds amazing until you compare it to Gabby Petito, which was 12.9 billion views. And I think that it's important to stress here is that I'm not saying that the Gabby Petito case shouldn't get coverage, right? I absolutely think it should have and should continue to get coverage. But I guess what I'm interested in discussing here is why Daniel, a black, disabled, highly trained scholar who disappeared in the desert while at work, that very classic kind of setup that usually attracts the true crime community, in a situation I think that we can argue with all things being equal, if we were to insert a different person into the equation, would have absolutely been poured over by people who follow true crime and social media. I think we'd know everything about his life by now. Sarah, I think that you can both perhaps 
talk about the disparate coverage in this case and also perhaps about how to best use social media and what you've learned about how families can harness it to use it to attract attention. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of different reasons that cases don't get covered, in my opinion. You know, I don't think that we can shy away from the fact that Daniel is black and minority groups get less coverage. Um, In addition to that, you know, he's also a male and males in this industry also get less coverage. So it's really astounding to me to see so few people pick up this story, because like you said, it really does have those elements that people look for in more sensational true crime coverage. You'd think that people would jump on it because it would get downloads because it is, I mean, you know, for a lack of a better word. It's a crazy case. And um, his father has, you know, made all these amazing discoveries. But, you know, I was actually recently just at a vigil for Daniel Robinson. I I believe it was about two weeks ago now. And there was almost no one there. You know what I mean? Like there was a decent group of maybe 25, 30 people. I would have been happy if it was a vigil for my sister. But what really surprised me was that there was really no media there. I saw one news van that left halfway through the vigil. You know what I mean? So there's another aspect there in that, you know, I've experienced that the Arizona community in terms of local news coverage isn't supportive. They won't do cases unless they're super new or fresh or there's something really exciting happening. They won't go to things like vigils, um, at least in my experience. You know, Brandy Myers, Alicia Navarro, Daniel Robinson, every single one has been a, a struggle for local media coverage. And without that local media coverage, it also makes it harder for people like me that depends on that to create episodes. You know what I mean? So I think that there's, there's a lot of factors there and, and perhaps why he's not getting more coverage. Now, in terms of the social media aspect, I mean, I think that um, David Robinson is doing everything he can and he's doing it right. You know, he's holding these, um, it looks like almost daily now, live Q&As. He's now, you know, working with more independent creators. I just saw that he is supposed to appear on the Mile Higher podcast with Kendall Ray, which will be huge exposure. That's a platform that really launched me and my sister's case. In terms of utilizing social media, it's like you said, there's no perfect formula, unfortunately. Just to go back for a second at the vigil, when there was no local media coverage, what I did see were two independent YouTube creators, one of which drove four hours to be at this vigil. So I don't, it, it's changing. I think that even I, when I approached getting media coverage for my sister, you think I need to go to ABC 2020, I need to go to Dateline, I need to go to all these big, big venues, but then you get turned down and it's it's not natural to kind of go to these independent creators because it's more of a wild card. You know, there's no assurance there. You're typically just talking to one person and hoping for the best. Um, But, you know, I, I think there's something to be said that those are the people that showed up for Daniel at that vigil. It wasn't the local news. It wasn't national media. It was me and two other independent YouTubers like that. I, I think that says something. From what I can see, David Robinson is everywhere on social media. He must be posting hours a day. And the fact that he's able to do that and he's constantly raising money and organizing searches, to me, the incredible commitment that takes to keep this going for that long, it's been nine months, I think. Yeah, just about there. I'd have to do some math, which is not my strong suit, so forgive me. The fact that David Robinson is recovering human remains himself as an independent searcher. To me, um, that's a huge story. And that's something that I would certainly want to talk about as well. This is a man searching for his son who is also closing cases for other families as well. 
And it's just incredibly striking to me that more media outlets aren't interested in it. And it ends up being you and independent YouTube creators who are going to be, you know, covering this. And I'm really pleased to hear that Kendall Ray is going to have him a mile higher. Um, and I'm hoping that I've been sending his story to some other podcast creators as well, who I'm, I'm hoping can have him on. Um, just the more people, the better, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's out there begging the world for help. I mean, it, from the very beginning, he was begging for resources. You know, one of the things I talk about in this case in particular is the, the utilization of resources. And what astounded me is that Daniel got lost in the desert and there was no helicopter deployed, which... Let me give you some context here. You know, living in Arizona for my entire life, born and raised, I have seen more cases than I can count of hikers going lost in the desert, just normal people going lost in the desert. And they always deploy huge teams. They always deploy at least a helicopter. Like that's it. it there's always an aerial search. And so when I saw that he was fighting for a helicopter, that made no sense to me. Not like he's not just a lost hiker. He is somebody who is lost in general. He is a lost person in the desert and they deployed almost no resources for him. Like I think that they had that search team and that drone, but that's not the norm here in Arizona. Like I've never seen somebody get lost in the desert and they don't immediately deploy air support. He had to, I believe, um, I don't have my notes in front of me, but I, I believe that he had to use his military resources and have the Air Force do the first aerial search for Daniel. And that just blew my mind. And I, I don't have answers for why that happened, because it, it makes no sense to me. And that really set the tone for the case, mm -hmm. based on what I've read, is that he's had to draw on his own resources and crowdsource resources to do the work that I think that it's fair to say we would usually expect law enforcement to do. Yeah. Well, and I think another, you know, another facet of the case, too, is I think, you know, mental health plays an issue there. You know, there are some things that Daniel did before he went missing that puts his mental health in question. And I think that immediately makes people think, OK, well, you know, something happened and he got lost. And then they're like not interested in the story anymore as if he's not worth looking for. And that's just so frustrating to me because that's a sign that someone's in crisis, which means you should absolutely be looking for them. Yeah. Is it that they're wanting a mystery? The Someone that is lost who needs to be found is the beginning and end of that. Bottom line, you know? there should be no qualifiers for lost people to be searched for. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sarah and I have had ongoing conversations about the nature of consent and true crime. And I wanted to discuss the complexity that comes when families are confronted by projects involving adjudicated trials. I wanted to talk about In the Dark first because it's a podcast that I've listened to and I know that a lot of our listeners have listened to. And I bring it up because it's kind of the sterling example of what good reporting can do for a case. And this is the case of Curtis Flowers, who many people believe was wrongfully convicted. In Flowers' case, 
The consensus from almost everyone across the board was that it was a miscarriage of justice and that it needed to be covered and brought into the light. But to my knowledge, at least, the victims' families still felt that he was guilty. I mean, they'd been told by the prosecutor that he was guilty for, you know, over a decade. And they still believed he committed the crime and were unhappy with the coverage. And I think that we both know that in limited situations, that's going to happen no matter what, even if someone is truly innocent, and that's never going to be easy. Um, And I bring that up not to discuss specifically wrongful convictions, but to talk more about media that has kind of sprung from that. So they may be podcasts that are about a case where someone isn't even necessarily seeking a new trial, right? But they may be a podcast about that and saying, is this person really guilty? You know, like a podcaster may be asking questions. They may not even have access to the convicted or to the family. It may be about a case that's been adjudicated and a person is seeking resentencing, right? Or they're seeking to have a new trial based on new evidence. They may not be claiming to be innocent, but they may be um, offering some extenuating circumstances. And one thing I wanted to bring up here was a TikTok video that you brought to my attention. Um, And we are not going to bring up the name of the documentary um, because that is the request of the victim's family. So I would love for our audience also not to Google it. I know that we probably can't, you know, make anybody do that. But this is the murder of a young woman named Brooke. And she was murdered by someone who knew her. And the person was convicted and never said that they didn't kill her to my understanding. But after their conviction, they claimed that there were some extenuating circumstances based on a condition that should affect their conviction in some way, right? Right. And there was then a documentary made about the case that Brooks' family did not wish to participate in, but it was made anyway. And there were some friends of Brooks that participated in the documentary. But it was certainly told more from the perspective, I think you could argue, of the convicted. Um, And I think that is going to necessarily kind of be the case if only one party participates. But Brooke's family was obviously not happy with this because there are family photos that are used. There's details of Brooke's personal life that were used. It was um, really upsetting for her family to find out that this was coming out. This is a new theory by the defense that's being presented, um, and arguably it's the theory that is considered fascinating and thus has kind of inspired the documentary. And I think that if the theory had been boring, there would be no documentary. So it's not the fact that the killer wants to argue extenuating circumstances. It's that the killer wants to argue interesting, extenuating circumstances. And that's the reason that a documentary was made. And the reason that any of us know about this in the first place is that Brooke's sister made a TikTok about how incredibly painful it was for this to come out and not only um, rip open that wound, but expose their entire family um, to millions of people and to have this documentary come out without their participation. And I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on that, you know, because you can speak to this a little bit differently than a lot of other people can. And 
especially because one thing that I realized when I was watching the video was that I know very little about consent <laughs> in that kind of media. Yeah, well, and of course, you know, I have to say that I've since become friends with, you know, Brooke's sister. You know, I saw her video. I helped her share it. We've had some meetings behind the scenes to talk about what she could do to get this documentary stopped. And essentially, there was nothing she could do, unfortunately. We spoke with a lawyer um, and the documentary, you know, the creators, the streaming service, they didn't seem to care either. You know, it, it, it really comes down to intentions. You know, is it just for sensational purposes, because that's how I see it. You know what I mean? They're, they're taking this case and they're sensationalizing it in a way of, ooh, could this be a wrongful conviction? When, like you said, there are no credible sources in the background working towards that or to even lean that way. It was, like you said, it was more of like a medical condition that they were arguing. But on top of that, you know, one of the things that I know hurt the family too was that it's my understanding that they took testimony from the trial of them talking about how the murderer was a good guy because they were friends before, you know, and that happens all the time. Look at my case with my sister. You know, I, I argued forever that my dad was a good dad because that's the way I saw it. So I think it's really terrible to take somebody's testimony in court when they're being truthful to say, no, we, you know, we didn't see this coming. He was a good guy. We thought that they were friends, whatever it might be, and then put that in a documentary to spin it as if the family supports that narrative too, because that's my understanding that that's what happened, um, according to Brooke's sister. I think that that type of true crime is being made for one reason, and that is for money, that is for sensationalism, that is for clicks. When it comes down to consent, I can tell you all about that. Um, there, There is no consent. You don't have to have any consent in true crime, um, not for documentaries, not for podcasts, not for YouTube, not for anything, not even for traditional you know, journalism, if you will. Um, I'm experiencing that right now. You know, I'm telling people left and right, I don't want to do projects about my sister. And the nastier ones will say, okay, we'll do it without you. Or they threaten to pull people that um, I don't agree with in talking about the case. So I think that this is a, a horrific example of creating true crime for really no good reason and not thinking about the consequences of who they're hurting. Another thing Sarah introduced me to were victims' families on TikTok and Instagram who'd been posting about the language used in reporting, mostly in headlines, but also on YouTube and even on podcasts, surrounding their loved ones' deaths. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I think that our audiences for your show and our show are already really aware of thinking about how families behind cases are present and there and that people are survivors and victims. But a lot of the true crime industry is driven by search optimization and clicks. And that relates to headlines, video titles, what people will watch, what they won't. And you posted about these headlines um, that are shocking to read. And that was really impactful for me to watch. And it focused on the objectifying and othering nature of reading something like, you know, headless body found in river 
or torso and suitcase. While some of that is impossible to avoid, a lot of it isn't. And the comments on the post were things like, my mother was headless body and suitcase. You know, my father was, you know, torso and river and how that impacted people's lives. So I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I scroll through TikTok. I think that there's there's so many grassroots movements that happen on TikTok, and it's a lot more equal of a playing field for who goes uh, viral. So I'm always on there looking at, you know, any social issues, really, because, I, you know, it's, it's a little bit less censored than YouTube, if you will, but that's a whole different topic. But I'm scrolling one day, and I, I come across, or maybe I was tagged, I don't know, but I came across this video, and I forget exactly what the girl said because I got lost in the comments and all these other stories. But basically, you know, she posted like my loved one was so much more than the headline. Um, And yeah, to your point, every single headline in there was really shocking and really sad. And honestly, I was going through the comments and I started bawling my eyes out because it's so wrong. And I feel that, you know, like you said, it's these terrible headlines of, you know, baby found and whatever. And it just, it's so dehumanizing and it, it not only hurts the families, but you're also kind of affecting the legacy of the victim, whether you like it or not, or the survivor, whatever it might be. You know what I mean? The media is creating that narrative for them and they don't have a choice, you know? And yeah, I I got really passionate about that one. I started screenshotting the comments and posting them. So, and I, I think I tweeted and said, this is required viewing for every true crime creator. It's hard. You know, you have to get the point across so people click on the article. But my argument is, can't you just include the name too? You can you can include that sensationalism that will get you clicks, which I don't necessarily agree with. But can't you say, headless body of name found in river? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, in a perfect world, it, they would just use names and it wouldn't be that sensational. But to your point, you know, I have to be realistic here. In addition to that, what really upsets me is that especially, you know, when it's an unsolved case that needs help or justice or exposure, that doesn't help if you just have a sensational headline like that. It helps to have their name, maybe a description. Is it something in there that could further the story? But, you know, that's obviously not what they're trying to do. They're trying to get somebody to click on that article because it, it gets a lot more clicks when you say crazy stuff like that. It, I don't know. It hurt my heart. And I don't know how else to say it. I just think that it's wrong. And people don't realize how it really hurts these families. You know, I, I shared the example of my sister. You know, um, the very little media coverage she got when my father was arrested for the bombs in 2008 um, was rebellious teenager, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, my sister was 17 and like drank at a party and like smoked weed once. I wouldn't call her like a rebellious teenager. It was just so offensive and just not helpful. You know what I mean? I would rather the world be looking for Alyssa Turney missing 17 year old than rebel. They can't look for rebellious teenager. It's, it's something I took really personally because I've experienced it and I think it's wrong and I think it's sensational. And I think (laughs) You know, it's just the nature of true crime. Uh, I, th- I think it's the nature of major media and true crime that influences these smaller creators because they see the success and then they copy it so that hopefully they get similar success and it has to stop somewhere. I was thinking so much about this because you know that I work a lot with unidentified persons cases, doe cases. Right. And I was thinking about how much more helpful it would be to be able to work in some of the details into case titles. Because, of course, we don't know their names. 
But if you could work in even, and I know this is probably a pipe dream because no one will ever do it. But if you could just work in one of those details, you know, like Chicago Bulls jersey, teen wearing Chicago Bulls jersey found. But why right? not? I mean, I think you could work uh, you know, that in. I could, but would they do <laughs> yeah. it? Um, you know, woman in turquoise necklace discovered. You know, there's certain things where you see that, you know that you have a loved one missing because the biggest problem that we have with unidentified persons cases is underreporting of missing persons because of lack of contact. But even if you haven't been in contact with someone, you know, you know certain things about them. You know, they always wore that hat. You know their tattoo. You know, it's so frustrating to me because just, you know, a Jane Doe case that I have been working on for the past year was a woman who was decapitated. Um, and of course, you can imagine the headlines on that. Right. You know? Yeah. And she has been identified. And I was actually able to spend time with her family this past month, which was really wonderful. I, I so wish some of the headlines had included a few details about her because she had red hair. And red hair is a fairly unusual trait. Absolutely. You know, and they didn't live that far away. And if more of the headlines, there were so few, but if more of the headlines had just mentioned, you know, red hair and said, you know, red haired woman found and not just decapitated head. Yeah. Somebody might have connected yeah. those dots. Oh, my gosh. My friend with red hair is missing. My family member with red hair is missing. No, exactly. And like I said, I think it does kind of shape the victim's legacy, whether people think it does or not. And I think it also, you know, especially when you see bigger creators or major news outlets do it, I feel like it kind of, in a sense, gives creators, smaller creators, a pass to do the same thing. Well, that's what they're doing. That's, you know, that's what professional journalists are doing. Um, and that just, I, I just, I really encourage people to think for themselves and Think about the intentions of those headlines, you know, is it to get clicks to drive them to the article, which there's an argument to be said for that, too. You know, you have to shape these way, these headlines in a way that will get people to read your article, hopefully. But, I, you know, again, I'd argue that there's a better way to do it, that you can still include those buzzwords while also including things like their names if we have them. Things do change, though. You know? Oh, and they are. So, they are. I, I yeah. will I will die on that hill. Uh, they are changing. I am seeing it. I am feeling it. We have a lot more to share with you from this conversation with Sarah Turney. We'll get into parasocial relationships, what true crime creators should and shouldn't demand of families, the Delphi case, family content creators, how to revolutionize the industry, and much more. Make sure to listen next week for the conclusion. Meanwhile, please be sure to check out our show notes for links to both of Sarah's podcasts and for a link to David Robinson, that's Daniel Robinson's father's website. You can keep up with his updates, follow his social media, and if you're in the Arizona area, even volunteer to help with his search efforts for Daniel. At the time of the release of this episode, he'd been searching for 10 months for his son. If you know a case that should be covered on the fall line, there's a link to the case submission form in our show notes. Thank you for listening. The Fall Line is a fully independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And if you'd like to support the show and the stories we cover, 
Join us on Patreon. We're raising Patreon funds to continue to fund the Millbrook Twins billboard and to pay for a therapy fund for families who've been on the show. Each and every one of our Patreons helps us continue this work, and we're so grateful for your help. On Patreon, you can get early release ad-free versions of our regular episodes, plus blogs and videos at only $5 a month. We've also added video live streams, which all patrons can enjoy for just a dollar. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Waters, Kim Fritz, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrill. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Line editing by Bill Birchinger. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And as always, our most special thanks to Angie Dodd. Currently, our monthly donation is going to private investigations for the missing. Please join us in supporting this nonprofit. They need funds to help families access the services of PIs. <laughs>